This morning we're looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 30. The first half of this passage was always a mystery to me growing up and and even recently. Uh, But as I was preparing uh, for the sermon this morning, I, I believe that God has made this mystery clear to me. And I'm excited to share with you what I believe God is saying through this passage. So Mark chapter 8, verses 22, I'm reading from the NIV translation. They, that is Jesus and the disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He, that is the blind man, looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Most of our Bibles, there'll be like a little break, a new heading here. Uh, But in the original text, there there, there wasn't these headings. And and we're going to keep reading through because I believe that this, this is kind of one passage. So continuing in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? And so they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. We really won't focus on it, but at this time of Jesus' ministry, he was still trying to keep a low profile, which is why he's telling them not to tell others that he's the Christ. It's also why he took the man out of the village before healing him. Most of us, if if not everyone in this room and watching online or listening to the podcast, are used to stories about Jesus doing miracles. But this miracle is unique because it is the only healing miracle that we know about which Jesus did in multiple stages. We know that the scriptures that Jesus can do all kinds of miracles and that he could even raise the dead back to life. And so we can be sure that this two-stage healing had to have been intentional rather than unintentional. It wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't accidentally kind of heal him wrongly. So what was Jesus doing here? 
So, so we know that by this stage, Jesus is, is, is a well-known person in Israel. Uh, in, in verse 22, we read that the people were bringing this blind man to heal him. And Jesus already established a reputation as someone who is able to heal even the most difficult of problems, right? Blindness, which in the ancient world, there was basically no cure for. In the ancient world, if you became blind, you were likely to remain blind for your whole life. But we, we really won't spend a lot of time focusing on, on the glory of the miracle itself, though, because that isn't really the point of this passage. Jesus was and still is in the, in, in the business of bringing life and joy and healing to people. And, and he did do it for this man. So Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the village. He's blind, so he can't walk on his own. So that's, that's, that's a tender, loving, loving thing which Jesus is doing. We can see Jesus had real care for this guy. He wasn't making fun of him by healing him in two steps. Healing him so he could sort of vaguely see, but everything's wonky. We're going to focus on, make, on what makes this miracle unique, though. It's the only miracle done in two stages. It's only recorded in the book of Mark. And Mark, the editor of this book, he's the guy who gathered the collection together and edited it together, had a very specific purpose for recording this miracle where he did in the book of Mark. And Jesus had a very specific purpose for doing this miracle when he did it. Jesus heals him, or half heals him. He regains the ability to see. Verse 24 says he sees people walking around, but like trees somehow. And I can't imagine what that looks like, but we don't need to know exactly what that looks like. The point is simply that he could kind of see, but not properly. He had half sight. And Jesus puts his hands back on the man and he becomes fully healed. He can fully see. Something really valuable to realize about the scriptures, especially the gospels, is that the gospel editors could have put in thousands and thousands of different stories about what Jesus did. One of the other gospel writers says that if everything Jesus had done was recorded, it would fill up all the books in all the world. Well, actually, he says, the book, all the books in all the world wouldn't be able to contain everything that he had done. So they've chosen very specific miracles and other teachings to put in the book. It's really valuable to realize that normally, when the miracles are recorded, there's a deeper purpose for why that particular miracle was recorded. I think the context gives us the answer to the question of what is going on. 
this story, it's, it's really just the setup for kind of the second half of this passage, for what comes after. And often, the context in a passage will help us to understand what is going on. If you're reading the New Testament at home or even the Old Testament, you go, what is going on here? It might become clear by zooming out and reading the whole chapter or reading a number of chapters. It's really easy to treat the Bible as a reference book because we have chapter numbers and we have verse numbers. and Now we've even added in headings. But originally... It was just a book, like you, like you would read any, any other book without verses and chapters. And it, it was a story, a literary masterpiece. So in the interest of kind of understanding what's going on, let's briefly jump back to, to Mark chapter 8, verse 18, same chapter, and just the verses immediately preceding what's going on. And we're going to read a couple of verses So this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the the, the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said, do you still not understand? This is Jesus speaking with his disciples. Do you still not see? Do you not get it? Right. So that suggests to us that, that Jesus, in, in doing this miracle in a two-stage way, is probably communicating something, especially to his disciples and and to us. Which is probably why Mark chose to record this particular miracle. Disciples, they're kind of beginning to see. They, They don't understand who Jesus is. And this is the moment when the disciples gain half sight. The climax of this whole thing is in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, which a lot of people actually call the fulcrum in the whole book of Mark because it hinges on Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. The whole book of Mark does. Everything that comes after is explaining what happens in these verses. Jesus and his disciples traveling around. They're near this city, Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples reply with a bunch of different names. Um, ah, John the Baptist, Elijah. And it's probably reflecting some kind of reincarnation sort of belief vaguely similar to to what people might believe in the Hindu religion. Then Jesus asked the real question, the question he's been leading up to, and he says, who do you say that I am? 
and Mark, the editor, is intending for that question to come out of the pages to us as well. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is is it. This is where the rubber hits the road. Do they finally understand? Do they get it? Do they understand who Jesus really is? And do they understand the implications of who He is? Peter says, he replies, verse 29, you are the Messiah. Just a couple verses ago, Jesus is saying, don't you understand? And here Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now, Messiah is a word which we don't use in English at all, except for in in Christianese, right? But it's a Hebrew word, and it actually means the anointed one. Interestingly, everyone has heard of, of Christ, right? Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word named Messiah. And the English equivalent is the anointed one. Sometimes in the ancient world, people would have oil poured over them to show that they were chosen for a special task by God. Other times they would, they would be chosen, but they wouldn't have the oil on them. But they would still be called a Messiah. It's a literal meaning of the word Messiah. But in the time of Jesus, it had taken on a deeper meaning than simply the anointed one. It had become shorthand for the one whom God had chosen to save his people. Now, throughout Hebrew history, God had chosen different people to save the Hebrews. Aaron the first high priest was anointed. Saul, the first real king of Israel, was anointed. David was anointed. Many through Hebrew history were chosen by God for a special task. But by the time of Jesus, people were looking for the chosen one of God to save them. Because in their time, they were ruled over by the Roman Empire. If there's anyone who loves Roman history, Emperor Tiberius would have been the emperor at this time. And the Israelites hated being ruled over by this foreign power. They hated paying taxes to Rome. They hated the Roman customs and influence on them. And they were expecting a Messiah, a Christ, someone chosen by God to save them from the Romans. If you know the Old Testament, you know that over and over again when the Israelites were oppressed by foreign powers, God would choose a champion to lead them to freedom again. And this is more or less the understanding that people had of the term Messiah in this time, of the term Christ. So when Peter says, you are the Messiah... He is saying that Jesus is the one chosen by God to save his people. And he, and he was right, but not fully. He understood part of the picture, 
but not the whole picture. He's like the blind man, half see. But Peter couldn't, couldn't fully see. Because to him, the Messiah meant someone that would save him and the other Israelites from the Romans, from their earthly problems in a sense. And this is, this is masterful literary genius by Mark, the editor of this book, and, and really by Jesus who actually did it in the first place. Because, yes, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one chosen by God to save his people. But not from the problem which Peter was expecting. Peter's in Peter's world, the biggest problem was the Romans. And his hope was that someone would come save them from the Romans. But Jesus hadn't come to solve the problem of the Romans. Or, if, or by proxy, Jesus hadn't come to solve the earthly problem. But to solve a much bigger problem. It's a hint, right? It's foreshadowing. Mark is doing some foreshadowing that Jesus is indeed chosen by God for a task, but an even bigger task than people, people were expecting. The rest of Mark is the exploration of, of what the whole picture is, of what it actually means for Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus came to solve the problem of sin and death. And to solve it for all people of all ethnicities who turn to him. Not only the Jewish people group. This is why we can have a church with so many different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. Because Jesus didn't only come for Jewish people. Because Jesus had set his eyes on a dramatically, ridiculously bigger problem than the Romans. He'd set his eyes on the sin of humanity. Jesus was the one promised by God. Right? The last sermon I preached was, was about Cain. But Jesus was the promised descendant of Eve would crush the enemy of humanity. He's the one who would restore to humanity what was lost in the Garden of Eden. He is the one who did what Cain could not do, and what David could not do, and what Abraham and Noah could not do. Jesus is our champion, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Savior, the ultimate one chosen by God to save. We won't read it, but the, the rest of chapter 8 consists of, of Jesus explaining that he would die on a cross and that his followers would, would also suffer. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was tempted in every way that humans are tempted to sin. 
but that he did not once surrender to sin. He ruled over sin in a way that no human had ever been able to do. And not only did he not sin, but he voluntarily paid the price of sin for humanity. Dying on the cross in the place of those who place their faith and trust in him. He's almost the exact opposite of Cain who not only didn't sacrifice himself for his fellow human, right, Abel, but actually murdered his fellow human. Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper or my brother's shepherd? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Or said another way, I am my brother's keeper. This is the glorious truth about Jesus' identity. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. We call him Jesus Christ, almost like Christ is his surname, because we constantly remember and we celebrate who he is and what, what that means for us. The Messiahship of Christ means that a pathway to paradise has been opened for you. If you place your trust in Jesus Christ, claiming Him as your Lord and Savior. The promise of the Scriptures is that your sins will be washed away. That they will be counted as nothing that you will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven with joy and celebration and dwell forever in the new garden of Eden, which the Bible sometimes calls the new Jerusalem. Friend, if you are estranged from God right now, I implore you to seek him out. The reason why we Christians celebrate Jesus Christ so much is because through him we have been fully saved. Not from our earthly or our Roman problems, but from our greatest problem of all, or greatest problems of all, the problems of sin and death itself. Sin, which separates from God and corrupts our very humanity. If you need to do business with God, I encourage you to speak speak to someone about it. If you're here in the building, it's easy. You're surrounded by Christians. I'm sure that just about everyone would love to speak with you about God. Uh, But even if you're watching or listening online, it's not hard to find a Christian and talk to them about it. Friend, maybe you're like Peter, in that until this morning... 
you had thought that Jesus had come to be an earthly Messiah and save you from your earthly problems. Or maybe you had forgotten. You knew the truth once, but you had forgotten and become like Peter again. Lost your full sight and gone back to half sight. The scriptures do show that Jesus loved to alleviate or lessen the pain experienced by humans. We see that when he heals the blind man, he takes him by the hand. He does heal him. He heals so many people. But the scriptures also say that the life of a person who follows Jesus will be filled with suffering and hardship before their eventual glory, their eventual victory, upon their own death or upon Jesus' return to earth. If you had the view that the extent of Jesus' work is to make your life a bit better or to solve one or two of your earthly problems, then you were like Peter until this morning. You had a half understanding of who Jesus is. The good news is that today, hopefully, you've had a taste of the full picture. Jesus does care about your earthly problems. But his ultimate mission was and is so much greater than the problems of politics and money and influence. If you you had forgotten that truth, I encourage you to remember it. I invite you now to take two or three minutes. Just pray quietly in your own hearts, worshiping Jesus for who He is, for what He has really done for you. Thanking Him, making much of Him in your your own heart. And then the music team will lead us in our final song.